And with a fall down there at the end. Well, I need to confess to you that all of my preaching ministry, I've, I've had this dream. Uh, maybe not a dream, but I've, I've kind of had this, this thought that, that I've never had the guts to go through with. And it was this, it's this, that one day I would take the pulpit and say one word or one sentence or maybe maybe one quote and then say amen and sit down the word of the lord now today's not that day <laughs> but after singing with our praise band and hearing a little guy sing a song that's so familiar to many of us some of us maybe all of us it would be appropriate for the preacher to come and say the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Amen, amen, amen. And we could be dismissed and go home. But like I said, we're not going to do that this morning. What we sang earlier as a congregation and, and what we saw on video is commonly known as the doxology. If you have a hymnal near you or some some of us maybe bring them to church or use them in other places. If you fish through, depending on what hymnal you have or what edition of the hymnal you have, you may find it on a particular page. Maybe at the front of the hymnal, maybe at the back of the hymnal, maybe, I don't know, maybe right in the middle of the hymnal. The doxology, not necessarily in the form that we just saw it sung and sung together, but in some form or fashion is one of the oldest, if not the oldest forms of musical worship that the Christian church has used. Not, like I said, necessarily those exact words, but the thoughts of the church, the people of God proclaiming together in song, and maybe not even singing and maybe just saying it, something along the lines of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Using that sometimes at the beginning of a service, sometimes at the end of the service, in the first congregation that I pastored, while it had never been a part of my tradition to sing that in worship, the first church that I pastored we sang it at the end of the offering every Sunday. Did you guys grow up in churches like that? That was a small little church. And, and, and it was the custom of the previous pastor to lead that. And as Michelle says every time she gets a microphone, I don't have the gift of music. So you can imagine that church and the way they suffered for three or four years with me singing the doxology after the, the offering was received every Sunday morning. But it was a joy for me to sing together before I preached, to lead the congregation in music on that day, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now, the doxology and the, and, and the congregation, the Christian congregation, singing together or thinking through together a prayer of blessing or a song of blessing for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
it's probably most properly called or, or referred to as the Holy Trinity or the Trinity. Now, take your Bibles and look all the way through it. You'll never find the word Trinity in all the Bible. Not if you speak Hebrew, not if you read Aramaic or Greek or any of the other ancient languages that, that may have first translated Holy Scripture. You'll never find the word Trinity in there. Yet I can tell you from Genesis to Revelation and all in the middle, you cannot read Scripture without reading and thinking and running across the truth that the church has known for ages, that God is not just God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, but God is Father, Son, and Spirit, blessed Trinity, same God, same substance from all eternity, all in one. Now, if that's a deep thought for you, I'm glad, because that's a sign that we can't really ever figure out God, can we? I struggle with thinking about and preaching and teaching on the Trinity so much so that, that I finally come to the place where I go, I'll just forget about it. I'm just going to preach and teach anyway. I can't completely figure it out and explain it in a clear and real way, but that's sign and evidence to me and I hope to you that God cannot be put into a box and God cannot be defined on a page and God cannot be limited to the words of one song. For he is so much bigger than that. So as, as off as inspiring as the thought of trying to understand and think about the Trinity is, it's also a simple thing to think, well, I just need to come and accept it and believe it and confess it as the eternal truth or the foundation of all of Scripture and all of Christian worship. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity. Now that's my text this morning. That, to focus on not the Trinity, but on the Holy Spirit. But I can't speak about that in an evangelical church without talking about the Trinity. Eugene Peterson says this about the Trinity. Trinity is a steady call and invitation to participate in the energetically active life of God. Those are big words. It is the participation in the Trinity that makes things and people particularly and distinctively who they are. We are not spectators to God. There is always a hand reaching out to pull us into the Trinitarian actions of holy creation, holy salvation, and holy community. God reaches to us as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit to invite us in to participate in who he is and what he is doing and what he wants to do in us and through us and for us now and forever. Amen. It's a teaching of the Trinity that underlies all of Scripture, that is the basis for all of the hymns and praise courses and songs that we will ever sing as a church, for every sermon, for every Sunday school lesson, for every strategic plan or activity that the church would ever put into place. It's that teaching, it's that truth that gives us kind of our steady footing in trying to follow God and trying to hear from his holy word. So as we pick up scripture, as we find ourselves in the context this morning of John's, the gospel of John's upper room discourse, we come to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, promise of the Holy Spirit found in John chapter 14. And I'm going to light these candles here kind of as a continued participation of this setting. And also as a reminder and as a symbol the things we will think about and talk about together this morning in talking and thinking through the text on the Holy Spirit. In some logos, 
in some Christian symbols, fire is a sign or a symbol for the Holy Spirit. It's part of the logo for the denomination of the Church of the Nazarene and other denominations that typically confess a holiness tradition or hold to a holiness tradition. We would say that Jesus is the light of the world, and that's a symbol in and of itself. But fire is a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit in our work. We could move forward and talk in depth about what fire might mean and how that might symbolize the working of the Holy Spirit. But I want to focus this morning on the promise of the Holy Spirit, the way that John presents it to us through the words of our Lord Jesus that night, those events leading up to his betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection, as he gives four teachings or four truths, four texts, if you will, in Johns 14, 15, and 16 about what Jesus said and taught about the Holy Spirit. The first passage that we have in John chapter 14 is really the first sign of a promise, the first words of a promise that the Holy Spirit is coming to be a part, to coming to be, to be embodied in the life of those who believe and those who confess in Jesus Christ. He says this in verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, while we could find other scriptural teachings that talk about the Holy Spirit, we could even talk about some of the prophetic material in the Old Testament that somehow foreshadows or points towards the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the first time and the clearest time that Scripture teaches and talks about what the Holy Spirit will mean in the life of you and me and certainly in other people. Jesus is giving these words to his disciples and he's saying, as I go away, I will ask the Father to give you another helper. He has been a helper. He's been more than a helper, but he's been a helper. He's saying, I will ask the Father to give you another helper, one that will not come and minister for a period of time and then go away like I'm telling you I'm going to do and is going to happen to me, but one who will be with you forever. Now, if you think understanding and getting in your mind the idea of the Trinity is a tough thing, try to figure out forever. Try to explain forever to a child. Try to write def- a definition or a description of what forever means and I don't know, maybe my mind is so simple, but when I try to figure out forever, I, I usually give up. Jesus is saying it, it will not be for a day or a year or a decade or a generation, but forever. The Holy Spirit will come and be your helper, will rest upon you, to be with you. If you're a disciple and you're hearing these words, in one sense you're thinking, oh no, Jesus is saying he's going away. They're not thinking quite death going away ascending into heaven going away. They're thinking he's going to find another group of disciples maybe. Perhaps he's going to find a a different way to minister, maybe a different country, a different place. He certainly is capable of doing that, and certainly people would follow him. They're not thinking in in, in terms of death and resurrection going away. So in one sense, they're dreading that. They're, they're, They're receiving that news in a difficult way, and yet he's saying, I will ask the Father to send you a helper who will stay with you forever. So the disciples might be saying something like this to themselves, good. 
three years wasn't long enough with you. Three years just wasn't enough time to set the world straight, to take Jerusalem by storm, to even get my life and my faith right. Good. I need someone to come and stay with me forever and ever. Amen. He says these words, the world cannot conceive, receive him, but it neither sees him or knows him, but you will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus had dwelt with them. He had not been in them. This helper that is coming is going to be in them. A new experience, certainly, for them. A new experience for you and for me. To think of God not only in terms of God out there and far away and distant, or God in the terms of he came, he walked the earth, he fed some hungry people, he raised the dead, he ascended into heaven, but to think in terms of God who's done those things and yet has come and dwelt in me. Not around me, not near me, not above me, but in me. It seems like we're building on that theme of things we can't understand. Trinity, forever, God in us. So we just accept it, we just believe it, we just embrace the truth that God has proclaimed and the church has held true through the ages. And this is the truth for me and for you. God's spirit is our comforter, our counselor, our caretaker. Think about that. In some of the translations that you have, you may not be reading from the same translation that's on the screen. Instead of saying helper, it may say counselor. It may say comforter probably doesn't say caretaker. We don't have to pick and choose which one of those we like the best because the truth is the Holy Spirit is all of those things to you and to me, not just when we need it, but when we don't need it. He is our comforter. He's our counselor. He's our caretaker. I say that deliberately slow. Anything else to add? One of our trucker friends passing by on Beltway 8. God bless him as he goes his way. Counsel him, comfort him, take care of him. Holy Spirit. I say those words repetitiously and, and deliberately because I don't want us to just blow by them. For last week, and this week, and even today, we will need to be comforted. We will need to be counseled. And we will need someone to take care of us. Now, if that's not our mother, or our father, or our husband, or our wife, or a nurse, or someone like that, it should be the Holy Spirit taking care of us, comforting us, counseling us, watching over us. In the same way that Jesus tells his disciples he's going away, and as he goes away, he's going to ask the Father to send the helper, a helper who will come and counsel them when they're confused, comfort them when they're heartbroken, and take care of them when they don't even know they need to be taken care of. Whether it's yesterday or today or tomorrow, folks, and when I say folks, I mean me and you, we're going to need God to be those things in our life. We're going to need to rest on and believe and embrace this truth that God 
is not just doing something in eternity, preparing something far away in the future for us and far away from earth for us, but he's here, he's now, forever, with us, counseling us when we're confused, comforting us when our heart is broken, taking care of us when we don't even know that we need to be taken care of or when we do know that we need to be taken care of. Lord, just take care of me. Those would be good words to use in in our prayer life, in our God-thought life. Because if we can come to the place where we confess that we need someone to comfort us and counsel us and take care of us, and, and we don't just need that to be a person, but we recognize that people are limited, the body of Christ is limited, but the power of God and the abilities of God are unlimited. If we come to the, the belief in that and we can confess that clearly and, and embrace that truth, then we're able to, to really pray and dialogue with God in such a way that he wants to be dealt with with us. He wants to come over us in the times when we need him and we know that we need him and in the times when we need him and we don't even know it. He comes, he comforts, he counsels, he takes care of us. I've thought about the people in Malaysia and all the families connected with that very confusing story. It starts three weeks into the search for this plane. I can tell you, I can't understand the Trinity. I can't understand forever. I forget what the other thing I couldn't understand is. The fourth thing I can't understand is how we lose a plane for this amount of time. Aren't we living in the most technology-savvy time in the history of the world? Don't we have all the check systems and guards and all those things to make sure that we have information not in an hour, but right now, Jack? How can we be in the third week of this? And that's just a first world problem thought there. If you're a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or a child of someone who's on that plane or connected to that flight, how in your third week could you have sanity? Where are they? What happened? Will I ever see them again? Will I ever know what happened to them? I, I, I don't know how many people on that plane were Christians. I, I could make some guesses and hunches that would likely be wrong. It's not my area of specialty. But this is what I do know, that even when they don't know it, even when they haven't asked for it, our God is big enough and cares enough and loves enough for all that he's created that he has moved right in amongst those family members to bring comfort, to bring counseling, to offer care to them in a time of need, maybe when they've turned to him and asked for him to do so, but maybe when they've never even thought about doing such a thing. And I can't say that that's what's kept them in their sanity or that's what's kept them from doing something postal. No offense, post office workers. But I have this sense that, that even when they couldn't ask for it and didn't know what was happening, God was at work in the life of the midst of their crisis. And that's a big crisis. Some of our crises that have more to do with a stump toe or where will we go out to eat tonight? Certainly God can handle those small little things if he can be at work in the lives of people who don't even know to call out upon him. 
But people of God, we have this truth, we have this promise, we have something that's been delivered us through the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that as he has gone away, he has asked the Father to send a helper to bring comfort, to bring counseling, to offer care to us in our greatest time and hour of needs. We recognize this, or we should recognize this, and hold on to this as one of the blessed promises and truths from all of Holy Scripture, to not just hold us in our times of crisis and doubt, to carry us through in times when we think we have the world by the tail. The second passage of Scripture that we find here in John's discourse, also in chapter 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, Right about there, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, good, I can stop taking notes. Because all of the things that he has said, all the things that he has tried to teach and will continue to teach, the Holy Spirit's going to help me remember those things. He's going to be the one who brings recall into my mind and heart about how I'm supposed to act as a child of God. I can stop taking notes and writing down things. It's not really what is being said here. But if you're a disciple, then or now, there's great comfort to know That it's not in our ability to memorize or keep the letter of the law that defines if we are following the teachings of God, but rather it's in our compliance with or our compatibility to the working of the Holy Spirit in our life that is the great teacher. God's Spirit is our teacher, not our taskmaster. There is a difference. And I would suggest that you likely know the difference, whether it's from the pulpit ministry or a teacher somewhere else in your life, someone who teaches, who does so with creativity and care and concern, with a desire that the people they teach will become better at the knowledge or the content that they've attempted to teach them than they ever did, is someone who cares and pours their life into a disciple so that they may be greater than the teacher. Taskmaster just is trying to accomplish what's required of them by the one who sent them or the one who hired them or the one who signed their contract. My kids, if they were here this morning, they would say, I think this is where the star tested, star test came from, Dad, trying to make us learn these things instead of some of the other things that interest us and kind of stimulate our thinking. And I'm not going to debate educational policy or curriculum this morning. But Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, God's Spirit will come, be with you forever be your teacher, not your taskmaster. It's one of the things that we're confused about, I think, sometimes in the evangelical church, that, that God is supposed to be the one who guards our conscience and makes us do the right thing. And while God does care a desire for us to live holy lives, he's not going to force us to do that. He's not going to make us do anything we don't want to do. A taskmaster would say, I'm going to stand over you, and if you don't do it the exact way, in the exact time, in the exact function that I want it to be done, by George, you'll do it again. Or I'll take physical control of this situation. Everybody who's ever been in the military says, amen. Jesus was known as teacher or rabbi. People came from miles around, and in that day, that meant something. In this day and time, coming miles around is not a big deal. You have to go state to state. 
People came from miles around to hear Jesus teach on things they had been taught every Sabbath day for generations. Things that they had really been taught in the home, not just, well, teach these things at home to your children. They had truly been taught these things at home by mom and dad. It was part of the religious tradition and history of that day. And yet they came to hear Jesus teach because he taught with one who had authority. Isn't that what Scripture says? That's not going back and saying, well, he taught with one who was a taskmaster. That's saying he taught with one who had a good understanding of Scripture. I hope so. He was the living word. Jesus taught his disciples in a way that made them leave their fishing boats, leave their tax collecting, leave whatever other master they had once followed and follow him because he taught with such substance and truth and authority and love. And while we find it would be hard-pressed to find this in Scripture, I, I know Jesus would agree with this statement if, if he was on record in any of the Gospels. He would say, I, I hope that they would learn things that maybe I never even said to them. They would build on the things that I said. Well, if you read through Peter and his epistles, if you read through some of the other New Testament letters and epistles, you'd find that some of the very small things and short things, concise things that Jesus attempted to say to them finally sunk in and it was built upon by the work of the Holy Spirit, working and teaching them in all things and in all truth, not as their taskmaster, but as their blessed teacher. Jesus says, if I go away, I will send a helper, and that helper will be a teacher to teach you not some things, but all things. Not a few things, but all things. All things. Well, either one or two things are true if that statement is true, and I believe it is. Either we already know all things. Anybody want to raise their hand about that one? You know all things. Or the possibility or potential that all things related to God are accessible to you and to me. Anyone want to raise your hand on that one to believe that? Yeah, everybody raise your hand on that one. All things related to the knowledge and the experience and the following God are available for you and for me, the bad news for a preacher boy is that that kind of puts me out of work. Because the Holy Spirit is that teacher teaching all things to the people of God. It doesn't really put me out of work. But, but if we were to be so intent and so captured by this truth and promise, it would change the way that we do worship, the way that we plan our religious instruction, wouldn't it? We wouldn't wait for an expert who has charisma or creativity to come in and awe us. For we would spend concerted time in the presence of God to allow the Holy Spirit of God to impart great, divine, eternal truths deep into our soul. And so our participation in an activity like this would be less about trying to pour things in before I walk back out into a secular world for six and a half more days. And more along the lines of, preacher, I came in this week. And I'm ready to truly worship the Lord because God has been speaking and dealing and pouring himself into me all week long. And I can't wait to be him to add more things so that that scripture is true. All things related to God, all knowledge related to God has been taught, has been imparted, has been poured into me now and forevermore. All the things of scripture, all the things that Jesus said. 
The third text in this, this upper room discourse on the Holy Spirit found in chapter 15. When the, Holy, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, it's subtle here, but there's a great truth. Tenure in the church does not guarantee spiritual maturity. Catch that last line? You've been with me from the beginning. Before that has any power or, or any application, he has said the, the helper who will come will bear witness to me in you and through you because you've been with me from the beginning. So he's not saying your three years of service has made you mature spiritually and you are ready now for anything that comes your way. But rather he's saying when the spirit, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the caretaker, the teacher comes, because you have been with me for this time, as the Holy Spirit works inside of you and through you in the work and the lives of others, you will be witnesses for me and for the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, even to the ends of the ages, the ends of the earth. Jesus, for God's Spirit, is our eternal encourager, our equipper, our empower. So if you're kind of following along, we're seeing here kind of a, a building of things. He comes to us when, when we need him really to work in comforting ways. He teaches us things when we really need to be taught and have some simple elementary or maybe even a little more complex truths poured into our lives and stabilized into our spirit. All for the purpose of working its way out in a public way for us. God's spirit is our eternal encourager, equipper, and empower, uh, encourager. You like encouragement? You like encouragement? It's better than the alternative, isn't it? I think the alternative is whipping. In my 14 years with my children, I can tell you, the more I've encouraged them, the more I've been encouraged to encourage them, the better off the parent-child relationship has been and the better off the fruitfulness of the change in their, their behavior is. The less encouragement, the more the challenge, the more difficulty. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on parental theory either, family education either. It's a simple connection here. God's Spirit comes to us to encourage us. and We need to be encouraged spiritually, folks. Not just by a sense of, of emotion in our singing or in the gathering of our Sunday morning activity or even in the fellowship in smaller circles, but we need to be encouraged not just by others, but by the personal witness of the true and living God at work in us and through us. We find this when we're reading Scripture, don't we? Sometimes we find this when we're singing a song, sometimes when we're praying, sometimes when we are reading something or just driving down the road looking at nature or looking at some other activity or something unfolding in front of us we are encouraged because we're reminded that God said that or God set that into place well that's the continual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to encourage us well what is he encouraging us about encouraging us to keep the faith encouraging us to keep trusting 
encouraging us to walk daily with God, encouraging us to be spiritual leaders in our home and in our church and in our community, encouraging us to do the right thing even when the wrong thing is more profitable or easier or famous, encouraging us to be the child that God has created us to be. And folks, if we could ever catch a glimpse of the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, the child, the student, the person that God has created us to be, if we could catch a glimpse of that for just a moment, we would be in awe for the rest of our life. Because it wouldn't be a pretty picture of who we could be on earth in a magazine or on TV or in any other famous circle, but it would be a reflection of the living God in us and through us for the proclamation or for the glory of God in this world. The Holy Spirit is constantly and continually at work trying to encourage us just to get a glimpse of that, just to believe for a moment that that is possible in our life and in our world. God's Spirit is equipping us to be the church, to do the right things, to have the broken things in our life fixed and repaired or replaced. And God's Spirit is empowering us to proclaim the truth of God in our life and in our home and in our world. We don't do that because we have sophisticated words or clever analogies. We do that because God is at work in us and through us. And let me tell you, that's, that's the foundation for any type of public witness or preaching. I believe that it's not my words, but it's his words. Garen prayed that this morning before I got up. I prayed that before Garen prayed it. Somebody else prayed it before I did. Whether it's in this room or in a Bible study or in anywhere, if we're going into a hospital room, if we're going into a school counseling room to talk to someone, if wherever it is, if there are words, they are limited, they are weak, they are not eternal. But if they're the words of God, if the Holy Spirit is at work in the relationship or in the conversation that's taking place, whether in a big crowd or a small crowd, whether it's one on 300 or one on one, the Holy Spirit's empowering us to say something that is eternal and something that's true, great things can happen. Because those words, those thoughts, those moments points to the gospel at work in our life and in our situation. Anything that doesn't point to the working of God is made of man, is made of something that's dying and decaying and limited that can't help anybody. I wish that wasn't true. I wish my words could help someone. I wish my thoughts, my words could have some value. I, I wish the things I say could change your life forever, Mike. But they can't. Thanks be to God, his words can. And Jesus, as he's teaching in the upper room with his disciples near the end of his life, He's promising the coming of the Holy Spirit. As he goes, he asks the Father to send the helper. He's telling them he's going to be a teacher to, to counsel, to comfort, to bring care to them. He's telling them that when the Spirit comes upon them, that they will be equipped, they will be encouraged, they will be empowered. And so 
are we. Whatever today or tomorrow brings, if it's discouraging, the Holy Spirit is at work encouraging us. If it's something that tears apart the working of God and the building of God in our life, the Holy Spirit is continuing at work to equip us in the right and in the good way. If it's something that's at work in our mind, in our heart, in our hands, in our bodies that attempts to dispower us or disconnect us from what God is doing, the Holy Spirit is at work to empower us and keep the working of God consistent and strong and true in our life and in our ministry. The fourth text, the fourth passage of Scripture that we have in this upper room discourse, it's a little more lengthy. It's in chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little more lengthy. If you're one of the disciples by now, you're probably kind of, well, I wouldn't quite say bored, but you're kind of full of the, these words Jesus has been saying. I, I just have this personal trend that it's usually the, if you give your content, your best content up front, I'm likely to remember that. If you save it for the end, I'm likely to never hear that. I don't know about you. And I don't know about the disciples on that day. But I hope they were hearing this. If they didn't hear that as he said it, they would figure it out. They would hear it. They would experience it in the next few days and weeks after Jesus is betrayed and crucified and resurrected. As he says to them that night and teaches us this day that God's spirit will come to convict us of sin to confirm our righteousness in Christ and keep us kingdom-minded and committed. So he's going to comfort, he's going to counsel, he's going to caretake for us. He's going to be our teacher and our taskmaster. He's going to encourage, he's going to empower, he's going to equip us for living the life of God. But what you need to really understand and know that the preaching ministry of Christ and all of the work of God the Father leading up to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who called out the holiness of God in the midst of the sin of man, will not cease to exist when the Holy Spirit comes, but will only get louder. For Christ has come to die for the sins of many. And the Spirit comes to convict us of our sins. Sin, both singular and plural. The actual sin that we may sin in a moment, in an instant. As well as the sinfulness that is staying deep within our soul that makes us selfish and perverted 
requires us to demand our own way and our own time on our own terms. Jesus is saying the Spirit of God will come. I will ask the Father to send him, and he will send him, and he will convict the world of sin for all time. So when, when you hear words from a song or a sermon or reading them in Scripture and you want to get mad at the deliverer of that, get mad at God. It's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Don't get mad at God. Actually say, thank you, God, for speaking to me and caring for me enough to attempt to save me from something that's trying to kill me. That's what sin does. But as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, it also confirms us of our righteousness in Christ. Here's the truth that you can't go away from this sermon this morning or this service this morning and miss. All of our righteousness, all of our hope, all of our redemption, all of our everything that's good and pure and holy and true is bound in the life and person and ministry of Jesus Christ it's the witness of the Spirit. It's the proclamation of Jesus. It is the eternal hope of God the Father that we would know and understand and live in this truth. And as surely as the Spirit comes to convict us of our sins, he comes to confirm us, to encourage us of our righteousness in Christ, which simply means and says to us that church, don't put your hope in the church. Don't put your hope in the preacher or the board or any book that you've read that stirred your soul. Put your hope in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for there it can be eternal, and in there you may have hope that is eternal. And by convicting us of our sin and confirming our righteousness in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, confirms and keeps us focused on the kingdom of God. This is where it's really exciting. Because once we get over ourselves, once we get over worrying about and kind of micromanaging our own salvation and running here and there and trying to hold God by the tail, maybe, just maybe, we might get a vision for the kingdom of God that he's trying to build on earth. Now, it's not a kingdom like Disney World. It's a kingdom that's inside of you and me. And if God is building a kingdom inside of you and me, we are not big enough to contain it. Amen? So it must be built to spill out of us onto other people, into other homes, into other communities, zip codes, cities, countries, across all the earth. And as our, we're convicted of our sins and our sins are confessed and forgiven and our righteousness in Christ is confirmed, we have our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our hands, our money, our time, our gifts committed to the work of the kingdom in God here in Houston, in Cyprus, in Tomball, in Klein, wherever you live in this great city of ours and to the uttermost parts of the earth, not to wait for God to do something great and dramatic that we might have some kind of rally for, but for God to do something tomorrow in us and through us in the life of one person in crisis, in need of seeing and hearing the gospel in such a real and affectionate way that it changes their life forever and ever and ever. Amen. And it won't be because I'm great or you're great or this church is great or this sermon is great. It'll be because God is great. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great truth. The Spirit-filled life is not a special, deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for all His people. I don't know what your tradition is. 
I don't know what your understanding and knowledge or content of the Holy Spirit has been in your life up until this point this morning, but I can tell you, being filled by the Holy Spirit, having the Spirit of God witness and fill you forever, as Jesus promises in the upper room discourse, is not something that's set aside for the special or the sacred or any other type of division that we might want to suggest. But it is a part. It is the whole. It is the sum of all the Christian life and Christian thought for you and for me. To believe that God created us in his own image. That he sent his son to live amongst us and call us to the truth and provide atonement for the sin of the world, breaking the power of death. That as the son ascended to sit at the right hand of the father to intercede for your sins and for mine, to plead and beg, if you will, for us to come to salvation full and free, and in doing so, to receive the Holy Spirit to walk with us as our comforter, our counselor, our caretaker, the great teacher in our life, the one who encourages us and equips us and empowers us for holy living and right living that convicts us when there's sin to be confessed and convicted of and in the same way reminds us constantly of the righteousness of Christ that is for us and in us. So that if we do anything in our life, whether that's one year or a hundred years, that's worthy of bragging about, it will be about the work of God who's put us at work in his kingdom business forevermore. This is the truth of the word of God for the people of God. This, this text, these scriptures were set in the course of the upper room around a table. And we've heard two other sermons and we'll hear, hear several other sermons during the season of Lent all around this table. As I was thinking this week, about these scriptures, about this sermon, I think God brought to my mind a story of my children that, that may help us think about things. I, I think this was probably true when I was a child, but I don't remember that far back. It's been 20 years ago. But I've noticed when my children come to the table and their mother or their father has fixed their food for them, and by the way, they're not in here, so you guys don't tell them I told this story on them. I've noticed that one of them in particular, but I think the other two at different times have done it as well. If we put some roast and some rice and some green beans, and maybe some fruit on the plate, notice they don't want any of that food touching. And one of them in particular will go to great lengths to make sure there is an eternal divide between the rice and the roast, or the green beans and the bread, or whatever the elements on the plate are. They, they don't want them touching. And, and I could live with that. I, I, I get that a little bit. But, but this one child goes a little further than that. She <laughs> only eats one section of food at a time. I, I like to mix up my food. I like a little rice with my roast. I like a little green beans with my fruit. Probably not, but yeah, just follow along with the story. Not her. 
She wants to eat the rice and then the meat and then whatever else. I think she saves the worst for last, which is another bad plan, but we won't get, get into that. I, I, I probably could, could live with that as well. But she takes it a bit further. After she finishes that section, whatever the first section is, she wants another fork to move on to the next. Well, that, that never has flown in our house. So she kind of improvises, and when Dad's not looking, she cleans that fork as good as she can with her mouth. So there's no evidence of rice or gravy or anything on it before she moves to the next. I see heads shaking all around this room. Either you've had parental child struggles or maybe you're just testifying saying, that's me and I'm just a grown-up kid still doing the same things. I, I've, had to, I've tried to talk about this. I've, I've prayed about it. There's been great struggles at the Ballard family table over this one issue. And, and it's a me thing. Jamie doesn't seem to be so concerned about it. That's, I, I think she's okay with it. I, can't, I just can't figure out why, why she doesn't want to just mix it up. And I've even tried to use the logic that it's all going in the same place in the end anyway. There's no separation in your stomach. But she wants it separate. She wants it distinct. I pray to God that that's not the way that we try to handle our relationship with God. That we want God so compartmentalized that we reserve his place for Sunday mornings or some other time of the week or worse yet, just when we are in crisis and we think we need him. And we don't want him touching any other place in our life. He's over here, just stay over there. And everything else is over here. I can manage this. I can handle this. I've got control of this. You stay in your place. I, I hope that's not the way that we attempt for things to be. Because here's what you need to hear. That's not working. And Scripture testifies that that's not the way that God works, number one, or allows us to let him work, number two. But the Spirit of God is all mixed up in everything in our life. Either we have the Spirit of God in us, at work in us, or we don't have God at all, even if we think we do. So if the Spirit of God is in us and at work in us, all mixed up in our activities, good, bad, ugly, why don't we rest and rely on God to do the things that only God can do and really only God wants to do for us. To counsel, to comfort, to care for us. To be our great teacher when we don't have any answers. To empower, to encourage, to equip us. To convict us of our sins, to confess our righteousness even for us and confirm it inside of us. And to keep our minds and hearts and assets focused on building the kingdom of God in any way that we can and in any way that he wants us to. Oh, 
Christ has promised that if he goes away, he would send the Spirit to the disciples. He is gone. He has sent. The Spirit is here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Your truth that rests inside of us all along our ways in every detail of our heart and soul. There's nothing that we think that you don't know. There's nothing that we do that you aren't aware of. And that's not to teach you as our great guardian or taskmaster, but that's to teach the depth in which you know us in a real and personal way. So Lord, instead of trying to pretend like we've got things under control or we can keep you in certain places in our life and spirituality, Lord, help us, teach us, show us how to be okay and be at peace with your spirit loose in our souls. To do the work that only he can do. To bring the changes and transformation that only he can bring. To build us up in only ways that your spirit, your living spirit, can build inside of us. So that we might forever be your blessed and holy and wonderful children. Now and forevermore, we pray. I want us this morning to pray together. On the screen, there be what, what you might know of as a responsive reading. It's really a guided prayer. It'll say leader, and that'll be my part. It'll say people, and that'll be your part. But I don't want us to think of this simply as a liturgical ending. I want us to think about it as a way that we can pray these truths together this morning. To really embrace the truth of God in such a prayerful way. We're even going to kind of slow roll through these slides. So that the words don't just hit our eyes and come out of our mouth so fast that we don't think about them. That these words rest in our soul so that maybe throughout this day and throughout this week... They may go with us and be at work deep within us. Let's pray these words together this morning. God, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of all. You have made us your chosen ones to be called holy and blessed. Comfort us with peace and hope from heaven. Nurture us through the community of saints, your church, our faith family. Keep us through your Holy Spirit's power so we may glorify you in everything we do. So we may be your witnesses and walk in your ways. So we may rest in our faith in Christ's salvation. 
so we may journey in the way, the truth, and the life eternal. Amen.